0: Thank you, Governor
1: Heinemann. It's uh, it's a privilege to be here, and I want to thank all of you for coming out this evening. I, I, there's so many other demands on your time, and for you to share it, share it here this evening uh, says that uh, uh, not only are you curious, but that you've also got a real commitment to the future of America, the future of democracy. So thank you for being here, and I, I look forward to spending this time with you. I must say that uh, someone who was <clears throat> once a speechwriter in the White House, uh, it is an enormous privilege you could just imagine to be part of any lecture series that features Ted Sorensen uh, he, he is a uh, he <clears throat> and I think I think you will note from your program that he was here back in the 90s and he's coming again in November so I hope that you will do the honor of coming out to hear him it'll be a special opportunity uh, I've had the uh, a pleasure of reading most of his new book and uh, recommend it to you but uh, there are chapters in there about Lincoln about the University of Nebraska that I think you'll find entirely uh, appealing uh, humorous interesting insightful and uh, so it's a I just I feel very honored to be here and Ted is at a stage where his his sight is not all that it once was but his insight is just as deep and penetrating as it always has been. And so I I just urge you to come out and hear him uh, in November at this. Being here in his shadow, one is inevitably reminded of John Kennedy uh, when he said after the Bay of Pigs, the disaster at the Bay of Pigs, that that, uh, victory has many fathers, but defeat is always an orphan. And and I think how true this is, what a victory you have, the number of organizations that are fathering this event. My goodness, I mean, there are at least five here. I think I've met the members of of the councils for all of these for about the last four hours. The Humanities Council, the Nebraska Foundation, the University of Nebraska, the E.N. Thompson Forum, and the Governor's Conference. Whoa, that is, I think, that shows this is a victory with many fathers. Uh, and uh, you should be proud of this series. It is it is one that has a great reputation, just as Lincoln does. I used to have a pal at, at television and remains a dear friend, Mark Shields, uh, that uh, uh, Rod Base will remember uh, from public television days from mcneil Air. And uh, Mark and I both traveled the country some and we compared notes and agreed that the finest communities, some of the finest communities in America are those that are the smaller towns that have both that are both the the, the headquarters for the main campus of the state university, as well as the state capitol. And if you put those two things together in a a nice setting, you have a wonderful community. And you think about it, Austin, Texas, and Madison, Wisconsin, and Lincoln, Nebraska. You know, you're right there, and this is only my second visit to Lincoln, but it grows on you, it really grows on you. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, delighted uh, to be back and join you. Now at, at a moment like this, of course, all of us are transfixed by the presidential election in which we find ourselves. And I think that all of us are curious about the outcome, uh, the governor raised that question. And I must tell you that I'm very curious too about the outcome. Uh, but I'm more curious the, the question to me is not who's going to win that's not the central question the central question is can the winner govern can the winner lead because when this is all over in the election campaign the hard work begins of democracy it does not end when you cast your ballot it begins then for the next years that are coming I think are going to be very challenging years for America, challenging years for our democracy. And I'd like to come back to that point uh, toward the end of my conversation with you tonight and dwell for a few minutes about what's over the horizon and what we face and what will face the next president of the United States. I will tell you up front that I've had the privilege now of working with several presidents as they take office and i cannot remember any president who will face tougher challenges than the winner of this election indeed i would argue that no president coming into the white house has faced tougher challenges than the president who took office in march of 1933 franklin roosevelt but the problems then were much more obvious than they are today today they're a little more hidden but they're also more complex they're very resistant to change, they're very international in character, and they're tough, tough questions to solve politically. So I'd like to come back to that, but first let's talk about the horse race, where we are, where the candidates are. Now I confess to you that I've been around this track a fairly long time. Uh, This is my, probably too long. Uh, This is, uh, this is my tenth presidential election. Uh, I started out in the down in the trenches, cleaning out the the barn, cleaning out the stables before the horses got out there to run, helping the candidates. And I spend my time now more on the sidelines kibitzing from television studios. But 10 elections does rather date you. It does show a little bit about your age. I've gotten very sympathetic with an old fellow who was walking through the woods one day, and he heard this sound, and he couldn't see anything. And then he heard it again, looked down, there was a frog by the side of the path. And the frog looked up at him and said, if you kiss me, I'll turn into a beautiful princess. He said, oh, that's really interesting. Well, he reached down, scooped up the frog, put it in his pocket, no kiss. Well, the frog's very surprised, crawls up the side of his pocket and says, didn't you hear me? I said, if you kiss me, I'll turn into a beautiful princess. He said, yeah, I heard you all right, but at my age, I'd rather have a talking frog. (laughs) Well, I've sort of gotten to the talking frog stage of politics. When I was working for Reagan, he, uh, Ronald Reagan, he, he used to say that he had reached the age that if, when he was faced with two temptations, he would always choose the one that got him home by 9.30. <coughs> I didn't appreciate that a few years ago when I was young. I get it. I get it big time now. So I promise you we'll be out by 9.30, and uh, you'll be well on your way safely on your way. So where are we? This is a tumultuous race, it's an unpredictable race. A few months ago, as the year started, you know, most of us thought that John McCain was finished and that Hillary Clinton would be our next president. How quickly things have changed. We have another seven weeks, they could change again. They could change again. It's very unpredictable, nobody knows for certain. Yeah, uh, Governor Heinemann went through those states. I might come at it a little differently. I think it's probably gonna come down not only to rest upon the second district of Nebraska, uh, but, uh, but upon the uh, state of Ohio. You know, it, uh, I, I reckon that John McCain would probably win Florida. And then there are three big states in the uh, Midwest and uh, Upper East, and that's Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, The Democrats have taken in the last election, Pennsylvania and uh, Michigan, and Republicans won Florida. That means Barack Obama has to win Ohio to take it away. He has to flip Ohio. There are other ways you can do it, but that's the most obvious. If John McCain can flip Michigan or Pennsylvania back into the Republican column, he'll be very hard to beat. So there are just a few states that are really critical, plus one congressional district in a very special state. But the, the interesting point is this. This is an election that should be won by the Democrats by a margin of five to ten points. This should be a laydown for the Democrats. Uh, the, the history of the politics in our country is that when one party holds the White House for two consecutive terms, at the end of those two terms, the other party almost inevitably wins. We've had six such elections since the Second World War. The out party has won five out of six. The only exception was when we had a very popular president, Ronald Reagan, ending his two terms in 1988, and we had what in effect was the Reagan III election. Reagan won again, and George H.W. Bush went to the White House. That is the only exception. Every other time, the out party has won. And then when you put on top of that historical trend, the unusual distinctive unpopularity of the current incumbent, that seems to make it a compelling case for a Democratic victory. After all, George W. Bush, his disapproval ratings now are at about the same level as those that faced Richard Nixon on the day he resigned from office. Think of that. The disapproval rate ratings for George W. Bush are about the same for Nixon when he was forced out of office. And I remember that time very well. I was there, I was working there. I must tell you, I have vivid memories. Uh, when President Nixon uh, went on television the night before he left to announce that he'd be leaving the next day at noon, shortly after he went off the air, I was working in the White House, my phone rang. It was the Chief of Staff, Al Haig, who said, David, we made, we forgot one thing. And I said, what's that? And he said, we forgot a resignation letter. And I said, oh, that's interesting, Al. I look forward to reading it. He said, no, no, no. <laughs> you, don't, you don't seem to get it. I, we need you to write the resignation letter. And I said, Al, hey, how about the president writing the resignation letter? <laughs> he said, he's in no mood to write a <clears throat> letter, you know? He's out there talking to the pictures. the 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 portraits on the wall and some of them are talking back you know this is not (laughs) not the time so why don't you write it I said, well listen now to whom does the president of the united states resign the president pro tem of the senate speaker of the house god where do you send the letter he said figure it out i don't know you figure it out i said what do you want me to what do you think i ought to say he's figured it out i'll see you in the morning Okay, I called up Fred Fielding, It was the Deputy General Counsel, and he helped to figure out where it ought to go. I had to figure out what to say, I thought maybe this should not be too florid a letter. You know, Pat and I really enjoyed our time here, we're sorry we're leaving a little early. <laughs> <coughs> Tricia and Julie will be back, and sorry about the dog pooping on the rug, but I, you know, <coughs> it's one sentence that hangs in the National Archives, I hereby resign as President of the United States effective immediately. So I remember that day and I remember so well with Jerry Ford taking the office, the oath of office said, the long national nightmare is over. Memorable words, some of the most memorable words ever spoken by Jerry Ford, a wonderfully decent man, fine, fine president. And the long national nightmare did end. Well think about that, today for a lot of Americans this is a pretty nightmarish time. You know this has not been, even, not, not just the wars and Iraq and Afghanistan, but increasingly now the economic conditions of the country. You know, for some of us who have the good fortune to be more affluent these days, these have been good years. People at the top, a number of people in this room have done well. The Bush years have been good years. But for the great majority of Americans, these have not been good years. Job growth in this country has been the lowest, at the lowest rate of growth since the Second World War. Overall economic growth, one of the lowest records since Dwight Eisenhower held office over about a half century ago. Under President Clinton, poverty went down. Under President Bush, poverty has gone up. Under President Clinton, average wages went up. Under President Bush, they have drifted sideways and down. For an awful lot of people, these have not been easy times. You can't blame it all on the President. It's not fair to blame it all on the President. He didn't bring it, but it goes with the territory. In the political game, if you get a, you get a boom, you get the credit. If you get a bust, you get the blame. And that's the situation that the Republicans find themselves in and why, you know, it's, it, these are difficult times. And why the Democrats are going to gain seats, what's called down ticket, and that is below the level of the president. And the other races, the Democrats are going to pick up seats in the House and in the Senate. We don't know how many yet, but they're going to pick up seats. They're going to have larger majorities awaiting the next president, whoever that may be. And states are turning at sort of the state level. I lived in Northern Virginia for many years while I worked in Washington, D.C. And while I was there, John Warner, bless him, decided to run for the United States Senate. And we knew each other, and he asked me if I would help. This was about 30 years ago, and I agreed to help him. And it was a wonderfully fun campaign. He happened to be married to Elizabeth Taylor. (laughs) uh, Now, the Democrats had a slogan that year against John Warner, and they said, "Why, why should Elizabeth Taylor's seventh choice be Virginia's first choice. <laughs> a Pretty good slogan, but it didn't work. <clears throat> Unfortunately, John Warner was elected, and I think he's been a wonderful member of the Senate. He's one of the old lions now, like Teddy Kennedy on the Democratic side, and he's coming to retire. And normally in that situation, uh, when one of the old lions retires, he, in effect, can anoint his successor, someone in his own party who can take that seat. Not so in Virginia. There is a Warner who is going to be elected. Mark Warner, no relationship to John Warner, high tech guy, successful governor, now gonna win in a landslide. And Virginia will, the, the bastion, a bastion of Republican strength for many, many years in contemporary politics is going to have a, have, have a Democratic governor and two Democratic senators. That is change. When a Southern state moves like that, that's the kind of change that's going on in many seats in many, many states around the country. So overall, the Democrats are going to gain. The mystery, the drama, then, is if that is the case, if this should be a laydown for the Democrats, why is it so close? And why, in fact, does John McCain have a pretty good chance of winning? Which he does. And I would tell you that is in part because John McCain is a very unusual candidate. By far and away, the best candidate the Republicans could have nominated in this environment A man who has a compelling life story. A man whose biography you heard a great deal about if you watched the Republican convention. You heard a great deal about it. You saw how moving it is. And I think many Americans respect him because John McCain, the human being, is one of the finest human beings I have had the privilege to know in politics. He is a man for whom duty, honor, country is not an empty slogan. This is a living creed for him. It is not, these are not just words carved into a statue of, of of general macarthur at west point these are words that are meaningful in his life and he lives by them to a considerable degree it has pained me sometimes to see his campaign managers putting advertisements on television which i think undercut the sense of who he is because they do not I I think that the the kind of campaign that John McCain that I have known over the years would not be putting a lot of those ads on television, but it is a reflection, I think, about the way the campaign has gone, and in his defense, he has been facing pretty tough ads against him. Uh, And as he said the other day in one of the interviews, it's a rough business, unfortunately. It's rougher than it should be. But I will tell you just as a personal anecdote, uh, my sense of him as a human being. Uh, it, it, I, was, I interviewed him in Aspen, Colorado last summer, and all of us knew that John McCain had a son who was in the Naval Academy. Uh, the, he's the fourth generation. John McCain's granddaddy, his daddy, John McCain himself, and his son, one of his sons, all Naval Academy. In fact, if you look back at it, uh, a McCain has fought in every single war America has fought in since 1776. That's a pretty long record of patriotism, of commitment to the country. But what was interesting that day in Aspen was that John and Cindy McCain had just recently learned that another son, 17 years old, who had just graduated from high school, whom they thought was going to go on to college that fall, had surprised them and gone and enlisted in the Marine Corps, ticket to Baghdad. Well, my experience has been that if someone in politics has a son who's gonna put himself in harm's way, especially with this war, especially in a war in which only about 10 people who voted for the war had anybody in harm's way, that they would wanna go out and beat their chests and say, look at me, look at my son, look how, look how good we are. I've seen that in other instances. And to, and I, so I said to him, John, do you wanna talk about this? I, nobody knows, know it, knows it right now that you have had this son who's gone in. Would you like to go out here and have a chance now to talk to these good folks and it'll be out on the news and and other people will know about it. And he he didn't hesitate, he said, no, I don't want to talk about it. This is family, it's private, I respect his privacy, this is his decision, I don't want to be, I I don't want to take advantage of my son. And by the way, I didn't say this, but it was obvious that to bring this up might endanger not only his son, but the men in his company. In, uh, in, if he were in Iraq. And so we didn't. And I greatly respected that because I know how unusual that is in politics. And to his credit, the man who had called for a surge in Iraq uh, never flinched on that question, knowing that if the president, uh, president Bush had uh, embraced the idea of a surge, that his son would definitely be going to Iraq. But he didn't flinch, and the son went. And he's had one tour and is, is I think, going back for a second. So that is the man that I think a lot of people see, and he represents for so many Americans an old set of traditions that in a time of enormous change seem appealing, and you know, uh, uh, they call you back, they harken you back to something, and a lot of people respond to that. Now, and I tell you, I say this as someone who disagrees with him on a good many issues, but I just have a very high regard for the individual. It is also true that his campaign has been enormously helped by the selection of Sarah Palin. And, uh, you know, she energized, as everyone agrees, the Republican base uh, at the convention, and it remains energized today. I must say she also energized John McCain. Uh, you know, he just, it brought new vitality to him. He's had more bounce in his step uh, last week uh, as he went out. Uh, and that was, it was a marvelous thing, I think. Uh, you know, it's almost like Bob Dole with some of those advertisements. It's just a different form of <laughs> vitalization. <clears throat> well, I, I, I'm a big, big Bob Dole fan. I think he represents that that generation of World War II that I, I just they, they were just terrific people. Uh, the people I sort of grew up with in politics, and among other things, they had a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, Bob Dole had one of the best had one of the best wits in politics. Just to digress for a moment, I remember so well. Uh, Gridiron Dinner is one of those fancy press dinners in Washington. Everybody dresses up in you know, in a black tie, and he walked in and up on the dais were three former presidents, three former presidents. There was Jimmy Carter, Jerry Ford, and Richard Nixon. Dole walks in, looks up at the dais, and said, "Look up there. Hear no evil, see no evil, and evil." <laughs> <laughs> And Bob Dole loved Richard Nixon. He gave a eulogy upon his his death where we all wept. But they had that sense of humor. So, so and just as Bob Dole has been energized, so has John McCain uh, by uh, Sarah Palin coming on to the ticket. Uh, And so there is, that has given vitality to this Republican ticket, and they actually have at a time which they, they thought, they a lot of Republican strategists thought they started this campaign with almost no chance to win. They actually have a very strong fighting chance to win. In fact, I think if the election had been held last week, they would have won. But this election was not held last week, and there are forces on the other side that are pushing back very, very hard, that are rising forces. In many ways, this is a campaign between an old order in America. An order The old order is one that has prevailed now for a good number of years, that has served the country well, but there's a new order now striving to come into its own that believes the old order is now failing, that a lot of what it believes no longer works in the 21st century, that it's no longer up to the task, uh, that it is too white, too male. Uh, they, they point out that if you looked at that Republican convention, there were 90% of the people that were there were white over two-thirds of the people there were male. Democratic convention, over a third of the people there were minorities. Demo- Republican convention, 6% black. Democratic convention, over 25% black. Republican convention, Republican convention. I say very male. Democratic convention, 50-50, men and women. A lot of young people at the Democratic convention. Democrats, you know, this new rising force that has appealed so much to the young, very technologically sophisticated. One of the things that's interesting about the Obama campaign is the degree to which it relies heavily upon the power of the internet. They are marrying up in unique and new ways, pioneering ways. The power of the internet to the power of community organizing, which he did when he was younger. And they've created a vital new force, especially among the young. It could be their hidden asset in the campaign. So you've got this very technologically savvy, on the cutting edge group that's trying to rise up and John McCain for all of his great, great virtues, uh, you know, has told us he doesn't use the internet. You know, he, he relies on Cindy uh, for uh, using the internet. Well, those are differences. One set of, you know, values and other beliefs and, you know, from one age and another set rising up. I don't know who's gonna win, but I will tell you that what we have is a conflict between an old America and a new America, a new rising America. The old America may hold on for another election, but I will tell the young people in the room, if you, you know, if you represent, if you really want Obama to win, you may win this, but you may not. And if you don't win it, you gotta wake up the next day and say, it's not over, we'll come back to fight another day. Get organized and go out and win it the next time because the young order is gonna eventually take over. The young, the young rising order is going to be the future. It's just they may not, the future may not be here this time, we don't know, we'll have to wait and see. I will tell you this about Senator Obama. Uh, because I think just as John McCain has great strength, so does Senator Obama, and they should not be underestimated, no matter where you are. And oh, I know, you know Lincoln is different. I, you know, uh, this is a fairly Republican state, fairly red state, but in many ways, Lincoln is sort of the blueberry in the bowl of bowl of tomato soup. You know. (Applause) uh, <coughs> So you've got a, a situation here where uh, Barack Obama is, uh, in my judgment, one of the smartest people we've had to run for office in a long time. I've known two or three people who were really, really bright in this office, and uh, they, they brought extra dimensions to the job. Uh, he has one of the best minds I have seen. He is not experienced. He does not have the kind of experience I would prefer in the White House. I would prefer someone who's traveled more, has more gray hair has had more time in the Senate, has had more time making difficult decisions, facing difficult decisions in public life. Uh, I think the country would be better served. Uh, You know, in some ways, uh, as one wag put it recently, we're having to decide between a man who should have been president eight years ago and a man who should be president eight years from now. They, you know, it's not an easy decision. Or as one of my friends put it, it's a little bit like trying to decide, you just bought a, a brand new car and you've got to decide, are you going to give the keys to your 16-year-old who just got a learner's permit, to, uh, or are you going to give it to your, your father, who is 89, and is you know, finding his way to the mall? <laughs> the uh, <clears throat> Not necessarily an easy choice. The guy's holding the car keys. The, uh, or the woman's holding the car keys. So uh, uh, he is young, but he's got a very, very good mind. At the Harvard Law School, where he was the first African-American to become editor of the Law Review, and that's a prestigious position, believe me. Uh, Larry Tribe, who is a constitutional lawyer there, a legendary figure at the law school, and uh, often argues in front of the Supreme Court, has been there more than three decades, he has told one and all that Barack Obama is the smartest student he ever had. Smartest student he ever had. And he's curious, he's got an interesting mind. He reminds me a little bit of John F. Kennedy. Uh, Ted Sorensen, I'm sure will tell you that, because Sorensen is convinced he's another uh, uh, John F. Kennedy. Kennedy made a number of mistakes early on because he was young and green in some ways. And he made mistakes in Bay of Pigs. He made mistakes when he went to see Khrushchev for the first time. We paid a price for that. But within 14 months, when the Cuban Missile Crisis came along, he was terrific hardest most difficult time the time when the united states came closest to nuclear war he was commander-in-chief he was the president and he was superb at getting us through the cuban missile crisis without a shot being fired and and coming out of that very very well it is a one this series is partly devoted to leadership and i can tell you it's one of the finest examples of presidential leadership we have ever seen in very tight times i like to show this film at harvard by the way to my students where i'm privileged to teach Sometimes there's a leadership film called 13 Days. How many have, have, of you have seen 13 Days? A lot of you have seen 13 Days. Well, well that's good. Well, so I showed this. I'll just tell you another aside. I showed this a couple of years ago to a class of, of my students at Harvard at, at an evening and said, uh, you know, I want you to see this. Come you know, if you can, because we'll, we'll talk about leadership as a result of this film. And they did. And the next week, I asked them to write a paper on Kennedy and his leadership. And one young man wrote a paper for me in, in which he, about Kennedy and his advisors and what fine advisors he thought Kennedy had been able to bring in. He said, just think how good he was, how good Kennedy was as a leader, that he had Kevin Costner on his staff. <laughs> <laughs> I must tell you, I didn't know how to grade that paper. That was, I was flummoxed as a, as, a, you know, as a teacher about how to deal with that. Um, I didn't know whether that kid was pulling my leg or or actually telling me what he thought. And I actually, I think he's telling me what he thinks. I don't know how he got in here. (laughs) Uh, 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 I just hope he never makes it to the White House. But anyway, the uh, (laughs) Obama is very, very smart, and I do think that he brings to this a quality of. uh, I think the leaders of of tomorrow are increasingly going to be people who are able to pull together coalitions, who are able to build networks, who are able to empower others in their organization. That leadership in the White House increasingly is not the lonely, heroic figure in in, the, uh, 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 in sitting in the twilight or standing in the twilight in the windows trying to figure out the, how to, what decision to make, but it's gonna be a person surrounded by really excellent people who is going to be engaged in a give and take back and forth in a deliberative way, to try to figure out the pros and cons of the decisions that come to the White House are 51-49 decisions. They're not easy decisions. They require a lot of thinking through what you're going to do, seeing grays, power to see grays, and to to make subtle distinctions. That's going to be required. And to get networks of people to work with you and to build coalitions. And I think that's Obama's strength. I think that that is great virtue. And I do not think it is John McCain's strength. John McCain tends to be, you know, he shows a lot of the, the kind of decision-making qualities of the fighter pilot, who is accustomed to being in extraordinarily dangerous situations, flying faster than the speed of sound, and having to make decisions like that from your gut. And you've got to rely, learn to rely on your instinct to survive. And I think he's very, you know, that's what he does. I think that's who he is. And, and he served this country heroically. I think it's a different form of decision-making. And I think Obama represents more of that modern decision making. At the same time, I do think there's another quality that I'm not so clear about with Obama, but I'm clear about with John McCain that I do think is needed in the next president, and that is internal strength steel, an inner steel to face the tough issues and to see them through. And John McCain does have that. And I'm less certain about Obama. I think that's something we have to sort of sort out as, as voters, about whether he is up to this or not, because it's a big, big part of the decision. It's not, this is not just about ideology. We need to make, be pretty serious about who's coming to the White House in these serious times. And I do think that the, for a President of the United States in today's dangerous world, I can tell you when you're sitting at the White House, you know, people come at you out of the dark. The, 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 the knives start coming at you. If you're sitting in the White House from other nations, they are going to test you. Other peoples are going to test you to see whether you're up to this, whether you're, they can roll you or not, whether you'll blink, whether you'll flinch. And I think that John McCain has proven he's tough. I would like to believe that Barack Obama is equally tough, I'm just less certain. I do know, I think his decision-making has a superior quality to it. So there are, there, there are these kind of issues that we have to sort out. Uh, and, and I think that, frankly, I, I hope that you will maintain something of an open mind, to figure out who's really best for the country. I know many of you have made up your minds, but I hope the rest of you would maintain an open mind and be asking yourself about the leadership qualities and what you really feel who's going to be best uh, for the country in the days ahead. Now, how will it unfold? I don't, again, I think it's impossible to know. I do think what we have seen is that that there have been shifts in momentum over time that Obama was ahead, he seemed to have the momentum, and then heading up toward the Democratic Convention, it was John McCain who started gaining, he was able to put Obama on the defensive, he started making it a referendum about Obama, and he started, and, and you know, do you want Obama or not? It wasn't about John McCain, it was, do you want Obama or not? And McCain was gaining. And he almost caught him before the Democratic Convention. Then Obama had a great uh, Democratic Convention. He came sailing out of there with a, with a very, very powerful speech, a party that was more united, and uh, he was making real headway. And then John McCain made the Sarah Palin decision and it reversed itself. The momentum reversed itself and, it, and the advantage went back to McCain. And McCain and Sarah Palin really started moving over the last two weeks. Now, I thought toward the end of last week that the Sarah Palin phenomenon was beginning to slow down. That, we had, that, that, that there was, it was beginning to get a little repetitive. And it was not, it didn't have that kind of moving force. There were still people greatly for her, but there were other people who were beginning to say, hold on, as I read more, I'm not quite so sure. I need to know more. Let's not rush the judgment on that. And then along came this past weekend, one of the most important weekends in our economic history with a financial meltdown in New York, and suddenly we're into a new game again. That the McCain-Palin momentum has stalled out, and now voters are drifting back, not in huge numbers, but they're drifting back to Obama. So what you see then is a Obama with a small lead, but that's a big reversal from where he was about 10 days ago, it's about eight or nine point reversal in many of the polls toward Obama. And McCain, uh, uh, Palin's numbers coming down slightly, uh, uh, her approval ratings and her disapproval ratings coming up slightly. So, what we have now is, in this economic situation, my own sense is, when the economy goes into a tailspin like that, it always hurts the home team. It always hurts the people who are in charge. And it's going to be, underco- it, it does not help John McCain's campaign, and it gives Barack Obama an enormous opening that he's starting to take advantage of. But it does not mean McCain's out of the game at all. Obama hasn't completely seized this. I don't think either candidate, to tell you the truth, has shown the kind of mastery of economics that we would like. I, think that, I don't think for either one of them this is their strength, but I do think Obama has the upper hand generally. He has got a better position to, from which to argue than McCain and the question is whether he can seize this moment and drive it all the way to the elections or whether McCain can seize it, and we don't know the answer to that. So there are going to be these twists and turns that are going to go all the way through. I would say at the end of the day, you'd have to say that the advantage the terrain still slightly favors Barack Obama, that given the circumstances, that there's a slight favoring of Obama. Now, I factor into that two imponderables that I think cut in different ways about the final analysis. And that is, one is the issue of race. Race is a major issue in this campaign. America has come a long, long way from the days that many of us know who are older, who can remember back. I can tell you, I'm from North Carolina, I can guarantee you that 20 years ago, Barack Obama would not have won a Democratic primary there against Hillary Clinton. He did this time. And in many states, he got white votes. So we have made progress from where we are, and that race is less of a factor than it once was. But it is still a factor. And I don't know how much of a factor it's going to be in the determining final votes. A friend of mine who's a major Republican strategist who is been high up in several cam- presidential campaigns, uh, told me this summer he thought it was going to cost the Democrats anywhere from four to six points in the final analysis. Now, in a close election, four to six points is a lot of points. That's a big deal. I don't know that for a fact, but I do think it's—I think it has accounted for why, one of the reasons why this race in the polls is a little close. But we don't even know whether the polls accurately measure public sentiment because we have a history in the past what's called the Bradley effect of voters telling when there's a black candidate in the race, many more voters say they will vote for the black than actually do wind up voting for the African-American candidate. So that's the uncertainty that may cut against Obama in the end. And I know John McCain doesn't wanna win on that issue, but it's just there. And I don't think John McCain's campaigning on the issue. And I don't think if, if Barack Obama loses, it's not going to be because of race. But it is a factor. And it's not an insignificant factor. Now, on the other side, the imponderable is the youth vote and this, this surge among the young in favor of Obama may not be, be, be picked up very well in the polls either. Not just because they carry cell phones, but for a whole lot of reasons. We don't know quite whether and the Obama people think privately that this is their hidden asset and that young people will turn out in droves and that they're gonna upset the calculations in several key states and it could help to turn states like North Carolina and Virginia in unpredictable ways so that what the, when Governor Heineman talked about those various states, some of those states may flip the other way because of that turnout and that it would offset any of the questions about race. Now, you know, the fact is nobody knows. And we just ought to confess that. For all the certainty we sometimes express out there on television, there are a lot of imponderables here. You hold the keys in your pocket. The commentators don't hold the keys. We just try to, you know, we try to observe, try to understand, try to figure it out. But the truth is, you're ultimately going to make the decisions. And so I think we're going to come down to the home stretch, and we will be facing what likely is a very unpredictable finish and a very unpredictable conclusion to this whole race. I think one thing is predictable in the midst of all this turmoil and excitement and backing and forthing and frankly sometimes I wish we could get our quality of the conversation up and get away from lipstick on pigs and things like that, Um, which is uh, so (laughs) trivial. But I I do want to say as we come down the home stretch here, uh, I do want to say as we come down the home stretch. I wasn't sure if that was a hook walking on or somebody walking off, I, somebody walking out, somebody was being carried out and you know I wasn't sure. The, uh, the events of the last few days in the financial markets, I think underscore just how, how fragile and uh, threatening in many ways the, the, the new world is going to be to our well-being. It's not like a war on terrorism, it's just there. You know, there, it, Winston Churchill, when he wrote his volumes on the Second World War, and he wrote, a, his first book was about the coming of the war. And he entitled that volume, The Gathering Storm. The Gathering Storm. And what I would suggest to you is there are several storms that are gathering uh, uh, you know, just over the horizon for America that we need to face up to and that are going to come in and hit us very likely in the the term of the next president or terms of the next president. And I think we've seen the front edge of that in this financial meltdown. When we were way, way over borrowed, over leveraged as they say uh, in the financial markets Uh, and the whole thing collapsed, started collapsing on these wonderfully big brand name firms that have been such an important part of the American financial system and and happened so quickly that even now many of us aren't sure where this is all going to wind up. But what I do think is that what we know is that when you have way too much debt things can come down on you pretty fast. And I would suggest to you one of the gathering storms out there is that the country, that's not just the financial institutions, the country has way too much debt. And one of the first storms the next president is going to face is, how do we work our way out of this? Before the crisis hit Wall Street, we were already looking at a deficit, a federal budget deficit this year, of over $400 billion. We were looking at a a federal budget deficit next year, the first year of the new president, of $500 billion. And now in the last few weeks, if you picked up USA Today, you will see if you total up all the obligations the federal government has undertaken as of five o'clock this afternoon, they are about 900 billion dollars. That's 900 billion dollars, extra. New liabilities that we have taken on. Now they won't all be realized. In fact, in fact, I think the, the government's going to make money out of AIG. Uh, you you, there's more complicated arguments, but there are big debts out there. And even as we speak, there's a meeting going on in Washington, D.C. It was scheduled this evening between Secretary Paulson and leaders of Congress uh, to determine whether to set up a new agency that possibly would buy up a lot of the bad assets out there. Just as we did in the SNL crisis when we had a Resolution Trust Corporation, whether we're going to set up something that's a parallel organization. That's going to be expensive. I I actually think it's a very good idea The people who are proposing it are people for whom I have enormous respect, like Paul Volcker, but it's also very very expensive. So we're going to have these huge expenditures, and for the next president coming in who wants to promise to do this or do that, you know, guess what? You're going to be broke. You're not going to have money to do anything, and you're going to have to work your way out of it. That's going to be a big, big problem for the country, and it does not even address what's called unfunded liabilities, the big, big debts that the country faces that that are coming due. That's another storm that's coming at us when the retirees the, social, the, the baby boomers become retirees when Medicare and Social Security explode and we pick up all these extra uh, obligations and they're solemn obligations we have made to the older generation to pay various bills and I was just with Ross Perot uh, yesterday morning in Texas. Ross has his charts again. Uh, he's out there on, you know, he went through, we went through 35 charts yesterday morning. And, uh, I told him, he ought to get back out on television. We need him out there, you know? I thought, Ross was a, I thought Ross performed a great service for us when he ran back in 2000, because he woke the country up to the deficits. It's not, it wasn't coincidental that within a few years after he held up all those charts, we got into a surplus. He helped. Well, it's time for some new charts. Because what they'll show is the unfunded liabilities, the bills we have due, for which we have no money saved up, are over $50 trillion and mounting. They're gigantic and we're not ready for it, and that's why the next president has to deal with the coming storm and entitlement programs as the baby boomers retire. You have to do that. There's another storm out there. It's called climate change. It's called energy. And we have not dealt with this as a country. We have been talking about this to a red in the face in Nebraska and blue in the face in some other places. And it's You know, I was there back in the early 70s and wrote some of those early speeches for President Nixon and then President Ford calling for energy independence. Well, those were really successful speeches. At the time they were given, we were 30% dependent. We called for energy independence, now we're 60% dependent. I'm very proud of what I've contributed to American public life. (laughs) The fact is we've been going backwards on energy. And at the same time we've been spoiling the climate and we now have this global warming problem and there two are coming together and they're coming together on the watch of the next president. I can't tell you how hard this is going to be because we have to do two things. The next president has to get major legislation passed here at home, comprehensive energy legislation, which we had never had before to really put, in my judgment, nuclear fuel back on the table to, to deal with the issue of additional fossil fuel. <clears throat> But if we're going to cut a deal, it's got to be a comprehensive deal in which the environmentalists get something too, and they deserve to get renewable energy in a serious way. Renewables, renewables, and research are the future. And trying to get this done, I happen to teach in Cambridge, Massachusetts, MIT. These are hardly soft-headed people over there. They're not tree huggers over at MIT. Fifteen percent of the faculty at MIT are working today on questions of energy, trying to figure out the conundrums about energy for the United States and for the world. These are a big, big deal, and we got to get serious. This is not a—you know—it is not sufficient to go around just saying "drill, baby, drill." that is a dumb response <laughs> you know this is these are serious time and we need serious people to say okay what is the range of options what do we have to do how do we put a price on carbon who's going to pay for it how do we get it done and by the way if we're going to do it here in the united states this doesn't count unless we get china and india to the table too that's going to be very very hard to do because china and india are nowhere near as committed to this as the West is because they want prosperity. They want to raise their standards of living. They say, you guys got rich spoiling the environment, now you want to put clamps on us so, our, so so we'll keep the environment where it is, but by the way, we never get rich. So it's understandable that they're opposed to it and we're gonna to have to cut a deal with them. The next president have to cut a deal with them to say, you've got to put limits on your carbon too. And you know what they're gonna tell us? They're already starting to tell us. You can hear it when you go overseas. Say, look, okay, Here's the makings of a deal. We'll take responsibility for our share of the carbon in China. We'll pay for that. But guess what? Everything that's up there already, you did that. You, the industrialized world, you pay for that and we'll pay for our fair share going forward. Well, that means we get stuck with a huge, huge bill. And at a time when we've already got people so hard pressed in this country, hard to do, hard to get it done. And it's going to be a tough, tough negotiation. I know many, many people who are experts in this said it's probably impossible to do. But you know what? We've got to do the impossible because we can't stand the alternative. You know, global warming is not a... a continued global warming is not an alternative. It's too dangerous for the planet. It's too dangerous for our kids and our grandkids. And we have got to do this. And it's our generation's responsibility to get this done. And it's going to be very tough. uh, I just want to say a couple of them. There, is a, there are a couple of those topics. I just want to mention to you, nuclear proliferation, the spread of nuclear weapons, is also extraordinarily dangerous for the next president. I was in this forum on uh, Tuesday night in Dallas with Sam Nunn, former senator, and Jim Baker, former Secretary of State, two excellent, excellent statesmen, patriots care about the country. And I asked them, which is going to be tougher for the next president, Iran or Iraq? Which is tougher, Iran or Iraq? They both said, Pakistan. (laughs) What? They both said, keep your eye on Pakistan. It's actually more dangerous right now than Iran or Iraq. They've got nuclear weapons that are floating around. They're not under tight control. They've got this very fragile government. There's a lot of unrest there. We've got them right next door to Afghanistan. This is a mess that's going to require the attention of the next president. So There's that issue that's coming at the next president. And finally, there is this big, big question of uh, how, what the future is going to look like uh, but, uh, when power shifts as is shifting now, the geopolitical s- center of gravity in the world and the minds of most people outside the United States. We don't think this here in the United States. We think of ourselves as the hyperpower, But for most people around the world, there is a belief now that the center of gravity in politics and in economics and in military affairs is gradually moving, leaving the West, leaving the United States, and moving to China and India. And that the future belongs more to China and India than it does to the United States. Now, the fact is, we can't control the rise of China and India. They are going to rise. They're going to be great powers by the year 2050. They will be at the seat of power, along with Japan, perhaps Europe. And the issue for the the next president of the United States is how do we get from here to 2050 without getting into a fight with China, without getting into a war with China? That's gonna be tougher than it looks. There are a lot of reasons why this could get very rough with China. But the other issue is, to me, the really burning issue for the next president and the overall mega issue for the next president is this. In 2050, when China and India and Japan and possibly Europe are at that table, will the United States still be at the table? Will we still be a great power in 2050? That is the question that really is the most serious, transcendent question of all of this, and that is, are we going to remain a great power or not? Are we going to remain a great people? We have come a long way. We have built wonderful things in this country. We have wonderful principles and traditions. We have a wonderful spirit in the country, and we are in serious danger of slipping into second-class status. And we all know that in our bones. The rest of the world, I can guarantee you, talks about it all the time. Anywhere you go in any international forum today, I go to a number of them. They'll talk about the United States is slipping. You guys are not up to this anymore. You are great, but you're losing your edge. Well, you know what? We can show them. We can still show them, but we've got to pull ourselves together to do it. The big issue we've got is leadership in the White House and the next president to help us get through these storms and come out the other side as stronger and better, resilient people that we are. And we need citizenship from the rest of us to help make this happen. Because it's not enough just to vote, it is important over the next four years that when the next president has to make these really, really tough calls, that we not sit there and throw eggs at him because he does something unpopular, because he does something we don't particularly like, but we respect the fact that he has to make tough calls and we've gotta understand it and try to support him when we can and certainly be sympathetic to the problems they're going through. That's why when I watch Hank Paulson at Treasury right now, there's some Republicans that are going after him at at Treasury, and I have to tell you, I think the President has not been exactly hands-on in all of this. I don't think the President has shown a great deal of leadership in all of this. And and I understand why a lot of us didn't wanna bail out AIG. I get that, you know, none of us wanna bail out these companies. But you know, when you're sitting there like Hank Paulson is, and he looks at all the the numbers, and the question is, do I stick to this idea of having the government stay on the sidelines, which is what I'd rather do, or do I save the economy? Now, to me, that's a pretty easy choice. You've got to save the economy. And so I respect him for doing that. But I'm telling you, there are people who are starting to throw eggs at him because, oh, yeah, bad principle, you're compromised. Governing is tough. And we in the citizenry are going to have to face it. I watched, you know, the best presidents, I watched Reagan make decisions that didn't always go with exactly what he wanted to do, but he thought it was best for the country. And so we, we're going to have to join in this effort, whether it's on energy or on the entitlements, to realize that we have a lot at stake here as a people. That it's not just about the president's leadership, it's about our leadership as a generation. It's about us trying to look after the next generation. is about us accepting moral responsibility for what we give and what we leave to the next generation. Our parents left us, our grandparents left us with a wonderful heritage. All of us are deeply in their debt. Is it, can we possibly think of, a, of leaving to our kids something that's not as good and leaving to our grandkids and saying, you know, uh, we just sort of walked away from those responsibilities. We can't do that, that's not who we are. So I think the big, big question in the next four years is let's have this election. It's going, be, it's going to be a rough and tumble next few weeks. But when it's over, we've got a choice. Are we going to continue to build this as a great nation and make the tough choices and go through the tough times? Or are we going to let this slip away from us? We're all in this together. Thank you very much.